actually place a finger there. I want to do a supplemental Bible reading in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. We bid you welcome. We have some visiting today. We bid you welcome in the Savior's name to gather with us. I want to read from Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9. A portion here, and the theme will be quite evident uh, as soon as we begin the prophet with some solemnity, and actually a touch of sarcasm along the way, deals with idolatry and those that give themselves to it. Verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or a molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear and they shall be ashamed together. They smite with the tongs, both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line, and fitteth it with planes. He marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house." He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengthened for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god, and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image, and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire. With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself, and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh himself a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my god. They have not known nor understood For he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is their knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire. Yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now over to Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 18. Familiar verses, some of which we've touched upon already. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things." Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, for even the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned their lusts one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. We'll end our reading. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you to join again with me. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we come today singing hymns of praise. Lord, we can perhaps with some fresh remembrance of our own sinful estate, having read these sober words, we can join even even more heartily with Newton and sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Lord, grant us help today. We come to a very sober, one of the most solemn portions in all the Bible. And we pray that you will give us the help of your Spirit to rightly handle and understand the Word. So give help in preaching. Give help in hearing. Give help in applying the Word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. As we read together again this painfully vivid portion of Paul's opening argument to the Romans, I want to remind you again of the importance and the very nature of this epistle. Unlike many of the other epistles that we find in the New Testament, Romans doesn't deal with particular issues like the local problems at Corinth. We see even then that the Corinthians, Paul knew of some of their problems and he opened the book dealing with things they hadn't recognized themselves. And then later in the book we see that they had written to Paul and they had various questions and Paul begins to answer those questions. You can look in Galatians and see the circumstances on the ground, if you will, the Judaizers that had come and were polluting and taking away from the gospel of grace from the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and it's a strong polemic against that particular error. And you can go on and look through, I say, the various other epistles and see quite often local circumstances, particular questions, specific things particular to those people, and of course, applicable to us all. But in Romans, Paul isn't dealing with this or that problem in the church. He does, if you come to the closing chapter, have a long list of names and persons that he greets and wants to send his affections toward. He's not unmindful, if you will, of the church on the ground. But he's giving a very systematic, purposeful, logical unfolding of the story of the gospel. And when you come and see, I say again, this opening argument... As Paul has stated his purpose to write to them concerning the gospel of God, which is the power 
of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We said last time, when you come and you read the remainder of chapter 1, you can recognize why Paul would emphasize the power of the gospel in breathing life into sinners such as the ones he's about to describe. Romans 1 is the beginning, if you will, of the story of the gospel. Because the gospel begins with the story of the sinner's need. The sinner's condition in his fallen estate. You come and see this description with all of its stark reality. Romans 1, well, it really reads like a history of the world. Sadly, as we mentioned last time, there are cycles in that history. There are certain sins, certain circumstances that characterize the bottom, if you will, of those particular cycles. And we've come to live in days that have reached the public celebration of the very sins that are here descriptive of the worst that sinners can perform. When you come to consider the ancient world, the Greek and Romans, the Gentile world that Paul and the other apostles went into as they spread the gospel, the description here is quite fitting. Secular historians themselves would comment on the accuracy of Paul's description of that ancient world. And you see the immorality that prevailed was publicly displayed and performed. We come even with Paul's in a public place such as this. Paul said in another epistle about some of these things, it's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Here we see the depths of depravity on display. Historians speaking of the ancient world, that which characterized the Greeks and the Romans, the corruption, the debauchery, the open sinfulness that they not only pursued but celebrated. We'll say more as we progress along the way in looking at this chapter. But the sins that are described here, when you move from what we described last time as as unlawful pursuits, that's the unlawful, the wrong pursuit of things that in themselves are natural, to the unnatural perversions that are described here you really see the ultimate rebellion. One of the things that Paul builds his case on here is all the evidences of God that we see in creation. And the very fact that we are creatures, that we were created by Him, that the world can't make sense without Him. Man and his rejection of Him seeking to turn the created order on its head. And I think that's really what describes and characterizes these bottom-of-the-barrel sins, if you will. Sins and crimes against nature. Against the created order. Things so obviously twisted, so obviously wrong. The blindness, well as we'll see, it has to be willful. It has to be purposeful. In the ancient world, the sins that historians describe, it wasn't, if you will, mere immorality. And understand this. We opened in reading a section of Isaiah that depicts idolatry. 
We closed here in reading Romans 1 that so vividly depicts immorality. And yet, what do we find at the beginning of this chain in Romans 1? But a rejection of God and a worshiping and serving of false gods. Idolatry always leads to immorality. And when you see a culture, when you see persons that are given to immorality, it is just evident that they have replaced the true God with a God of their own making. They have embraced idolatry. Idolatry and the immorality that it produces, it's never stagnant. We need to be mindful of that. The flesh and the world and of course the prince of the power of the air, the devil that moves in the hearts of these would try and persuade us otherwise. Well, you, you can pursue that sin. You, you can get there and you can control that. Oh, then you'll need the next sin, though, after that. Sin isn't to be toyed with. Sin and the flesh that pursues it is never satisfied. One of the, well, I'm almost ready to use the word ironies, but it's, but it's not an irony. One of the realities of God's created order is that only God and only a right relationship with the one true God can satisfy the human heart. There's no idol. There's no immorality that pursues from that idol that can satisfy I'm tempted to re-preach the outline of a sermon I've preached more times and in more places than anything else I've ever preached. Why every Christian should believe in many gods. It's not a statement of a denial of monotheism and an embrace of polytheism. It's a statement with regard to the sober reality that idols are present everywhere. That we are Professional idol makers, if you will. We make gods out of everything. If you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to find it online. It's probably online in about 20 churches somewhere. I've got to decide if I'm going to preach that in Northern Ireland in January again. We'll see. All men are worshipers. It's evident. You read Romans 1. It doesn't say men suppressed God's truth and they went out and became purely secular beings. No, they changed, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, for the lie actually, and worshipped and served something else. They didn't cease being worshipers. So if all men are worshipers and yet they don't all worship the true God, then it follows there are many gods. And you think of the idols, so we can make idols out of everything. We can look at the graven images such as we read of in Isaiah. We can read of the immoralities that Paul describes in Romans 1, and we can think, well, we don't carve things today, and we're free of those things by the most part anyway, so we're not idolaters. How many even of the legitimate things of life we put in the wrong place and turn into gods? There are many gods. The third point of that message, and I'm preaching a different sermon, I'll get back to this one in a minute. Not all gods are created equal. Read the book of Ecclesiastes sometime. And you see Solomon putting every part of life under the sun to the test. And he had tasted it all. Not just a sip. He had more of it all than anybody ever had. I remember 
a biblical history class in public high school. You can imagine that. Well, that tells you a little bit about how old I am. But the liberal perspective that came forth in the class, well, digressing from a digression here, but I remember his little comment about Solomon, the three W's, wisdom, wealth, and women. Solomon had it all. Sadly, he set aside his wisdom when he pursued the other parts of life under the sun to the fullest and came up empty. Not all gods are created equal. Only the true God can satisfy. Everything else is a broken cistern. Only the true God is a fountain of living waters. When we read Romans 1, I say like a history of the world. The depravity that surrounded Paul and surrounded his readers on every hand. You see the depths of sin. Some historians have suggested that perhaps as many as 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors engaged in homosexuality. The ancient world, just normal Adultery and immorality lost its ability to fulfill. The world descended into pedophilia. That was better. I remember reading, I remember memorizing this catalog and these closing verses of the chapter. You think about without understanding without natural affection. You ever stop and think? I hope you do. Do you ever listen to the news and have to stop yourself and say, why doesn't this outrage me? How could it be that I've become inoculated to hearing of atrocities like this? You think of the, the damage. We could almost say the debris that's left in the wake of so many lives. I remember being years ago now, Stunned, one of the first times you heard of a school teacher becoming involved with a student. I mean, how many times it seems a week you hear of such today. I remember wondering, how can it be that an adult would pursue and even find any type of satisfaction in such relationship. You think of how many in our culture where immorality is constantly paraded. And folks, we need to be mindful of this. We're being bombarded, literally preached to use a more modern phrase, influenced constantly to think this and that or the other thing is normal. What's normal to go to college and engage in multiple illicit relationships? No problem. You're young, you're sowing your wild oats, you're doing whatever. You'll settle down and have a normal life someday. Really? It's a book I give young people to read in preparation for marriage. It has a striking statement at one point about people whose lives are just the linking together of broken relationships. And if they haven't behaved themselves physically, 
a series of broken relationships which amount to multiple divorces without attorney's fees. Using and being used. Not having any relationship that was worthy of trust. Well, there's some of the rationale for your teacher and your student. Maybe I'll find a relationship this way that I can control. You won't say it quite so plainly. I'll be the one hurting instead of being hurt. These are the things that are a portion of what is described in this opening chapter of Romans. And again, aptly descriptive of the ancient world. Not so aptly descriptive of the world I was born into, but quite aptly descriptive of the world that surrounds us now. There's a lot of life that to me, as I've come into middle and more mature years, it seems to speed up. But I don't think it's just age and perception, but there's some reality to the speeding up of the downward spiral of sin in our culture. How does the world get to the conditions that prevailed in Rome? How does the world get to the conditions that are described in Romans 1? This is like a history of the world. How does the world get to the place that we find our world today? The answer is not far away. Sinners reach this point of unnatural perversion, this escalation of their deeds of depravity, by following a pathway that begins with the rejection of truth. The outline we considered last time in looking at verse 18 and a couple verses beyond was this. Number one, a revelation which cannot be silenced. The sinner seeks to suppress this knowledge, but he can't succeed. The witness to God is everywhere. It's in the heavens. It's in the heart. It's a revelation which cannot be silenced. We saw secondly last time a rejection which cannot be excused. Now think with me again of a simple outline of history. Again with this presence of truth, this presence of light that is shining, and the suppression, the rejection of that truth. You look at Adam and the original creation. Of course, his fall and God's gracious revelation to him of redemption. And you think of the age. I make this point in one of the courses in the seminary on different theological systems. But the significance of the age of the antediluvians. For centuries, you could go back to Adam and say, Adam, I've heard such and such. Is that so? You could find primary sources a lot easier than the card catalog in the library. I just lost about two-thirds of you there. Yeah, it used to be a thing. It's interesting. Because if you think of how late, if you will, in history, God began revealing himself in the Bible... 
And yet he hadn't left himself without witness. The revelations that Adam received in Eden were present on the other side of the flood through two transmissions. When you think of Noah coming out of the ark, the fresh start, if you will, after men had rejected the truth so evident from the beginning and filled the earth with sin and violence. God judged the earth and sent the flood and Noah emerges from the ark with his family and again from that fresh start, evidence as this preacher of righteousness could tell his children's children and grandchildren and how quickly they again sinned against light. And we read of the Tower of Babel. And then God, rather than sending another flood and another judgment, scattering the peoples into the various nations, and then from that point singling out a man to make another nation, to again be a testimony to truth in the middle of the other nations, and we see the history of Israel. God placed geographically right in the middle of the world. And then we see Israel itself sinning against light, suppressing truth, and the judgment that came upon them and the captivity. And now we come in this last great epoch of history. We are in that. It's not preaching headlines and trying to scare everybody by some prophetic insight. We read in Acts, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The very institution of the ordinances of the New Testament church. We do show forth in the communion service. We proclaim the Lord's death till He come. No other dispensational changes, if you will, between now and And the second coming. We're in the last days. And the gospel is being sent forth to the Gentiles again. Here, it seems in the age in which we live, that the Gentiles that have received the light of the gospel and have exchanged once again that truth for the lie is coming to its final fruition. Well, if we were to build on the outline we suggested last week, we'd move today to a third point and call that point, we move from a revelation which can't be silenced to a rejection which cannot be excused to a judgment which cannot be ignored. If there's anything which becomes soberly apparent in this chapter, it is the fact that God is not merely a passive observer to the things that are going on in this chapter, to the things that are going on in the world. Rather, He is an active judge of all the earth. And while the bulk of what we deal with today is very sobering, I'll state, I have in my notes, I'll state here at the outset, I look at the clock, it's noon. I'll state at the outset that we try to close today's message with a note of divine power and help. I want to just put two thoughts before you today, somewhat carrying on from Certainly the thoughts of last time. But the first is the willful rejection of revelation. You look in this portion of Scripture, we began to consider it last time, and you notice the repetition of the fact of the sinner's knowledge of God. Verse 18 speaks of men holding the truth, of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This truth they possess, they don't want to admit. They don't want to live by. So they suppress it. Verse 19 speaks of things which may be known of God. 
Verse 20 speaks of things that are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. There's where we read the phrase, so that they're without excuse. We read in verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. We read in verse 23 that they exchanged His glory. They knew, they were aware, they possessed something. They pushed it aside. We read in verse 25, who changed, or again, exchanged the truth for the lie. We read in verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It seems Paul's emphasizing something. You see, you read the conditions that prevail in Romans 1. The men that do these things. The world, if you will, that embraces and includes these things. It's not a bunch of victims. They just can't help where they are and need some understanding. No, it is the willful rejection of revelation. As John phrases it, men loved darkness rather than light. Or as Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, phrases it, the world, by wisdom, knew not God. They said, no, we're smarter than that. We're not going to listen to Him. We're not going to admit everything that's right in front of our face. We're going to make up something else. And we're going to live by that. Because that's what we want to do. It is a willful rejection of revelation. It is a purposeful, culpable ignorance. And ignorance, it's willful. I remember reading in the book of Amos when I was a teenager. I'm sure I've shared this testimony and story and preached through Amos some years ago. But I remember there was something that just really grabbed me. It says, late in the prophecy, that God said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor of thirsting for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And it continues and says, They shall run to and fro from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. And I remember in my young Arminian days, that that just blew me out of the water. People seeking God. People looking for God's Word. And they can't find it. And it said God sent the famine. That didn't jive with Arminian theology. Where is this from? So I just started reading Amos. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. you read through Amos, it's no accident, I believe, that in Amos is one of the strongest statements in all the Old Testament with regard to Israel's privileges. Chapter 3 and verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. There's a special acknowledgement, a special relationship, the abundance of additional revelation that Israel had received. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Amos is brought up on charges before the king. This guy has conspired against you in Israel. The land isn't able to bear all his words. 
God sent a famine because he had sent abundance of bread. And Israel said, no thank you. It kind of put my understanding of God sending the famine in a different light. It also was one of the first serious death blows to my Arminian understanding of Scripture. Can I say this? And it particularly applies to a congregation such as this that has the privilege of being under the preaching of the Word. The privilege of receiving more light. There are many ways in which it's a fearful thing to be a recipient of revelation. What will we do with it? I remember, I was actually reminded of this, I was listening to a sermon that Dr. Cairns preached on this portion. He gave an illustration of a woman that had been in Dr. Paisley's church. She was not saved, but she was attending regularly and was evidently under great conviction. And finally, there was a particular week where she was there and under the preaching And she seemed almost joyful. The conviction was gone. And yet she'd not come to Christ. And he told the story, Dr. Paisley was quite bold. He was bold in many things and bold in his evangelism. Called her aside after the service. Spoke to her privately. What's wrong? What's changed? She said, I'll tell you what's changed. Last week when I got home, I couldn't sleep. I was troubled. I'd heard the preaching of the Word. Couldn't find rest. Said I literally got out of my bed and got on my knees and prayed and asked God to leave me alone. And He's done it. If I could translate that and the reason that resonated with me, many of the home folks will have known my own testimony. For years I dated my conversion to the age of 16. I was raised in a godly home, raised in a Bible-believing church, made a profession when I was a very young boy. But in my teenage years, some waywardness. It's, I mean, I don't say this minimizing my sin, but I say it's almost laughable when you consider the world we live in today. Rock music was my God. I mean, you know, an AM radio with 0.6 watts of power and a 3-inch speaker, if you were lucky, then I got a job. First $200 I ever earned from McSalem Incorporated, the Golden Arches on Corporation Parkway, where you can buy an Audi now instead of a hamburger. Well, that $200 went into an in dash eight track tape player from JCPenney's, a 25 watt AudioVox under dash amplifier. 25 watts. And a set of six by nine Jensen triaxles. That will triple the value of a 65 Plymouth Valiant. And I remember sitting under preaching, very convicted, and going out to my car and cranking up the music to try and come out from under it. Then I remember even more vividly 
beginning to come to the point I could go to services and not be as bothered. Not care as much. And thankfully, by the grace of God, that scared me to death. To be unaffected by truth. How can that ever be? I'm not sure I said for years I dated my conversion from that point at 16. But I look back, I think there was mercy. There was grace evident that really kept me on the fringes of worldliness instead of sins that would ruin the future life. But when you see what is described here, the willful rejection of revelation. That is the natural inclination of the heart of the sinner. But the sobering thing here, we come now to our second thought for today, is that we see here God coming into the picture. Now not merely, if you will, is one who is self-evident in his creation. One who has not left himself without witness. One who has written his very law upon the hearts of men, as we'll read in the second chapter. But we see the judicial removal of restraint. There is a threefold refrain in the remainder of this chapter that should sober the wildest of hearts. It's translated differently each time in our authorized version. We see verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness. We see in verse 26, God gave them up to vile affections. And then we see in verse 28, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. It's the same word each time. They're given over. Now this does not in any way make God the author of sin. It doesn't make Him responsible for our actions, for our sinfulness. But what we see here is God sovereignly, I put it here, the judicial removal of restraint. That God looks at the sinner and says, you want to reject truth. You want to suppress any knowledge of me. You want to be like Israel and have light shining in abundance. You want to have a revelation of me that exceeds what any other nation is known. And you want to run away from it. Then God says, fine. And he removes that hand of restraint. As the one rejoicing that she was finally rid of conviction in Dr. Paisley's church. Or is this poor soul trembling at the thought of God removing his hand of restraint? When God removes his hand of restraint, the downward spiral escalates. We certainly don't have time today, nor was it ever my intention to go through the catalog that is listed here and give a biblical word study of every one of these vices that's listed. But if you see the progression, you see every relationship ultimately destroyed. There is, if you work through this chapter, a progression in that ungodliness precedes unrighteousness. 
the destruction of the relationship between ourselves and God becomes the reason that our relationship with everybody else is destroyed. When Paul begins to enter into the unnatural, vile affections that are depicted here, it's interesting he begins and says in verse 26, even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Historically, it is usually that women are the last segment of society to be given over to evil. It doesn't mean men are more sinful than women. Women have some spark of holiness in them that men don't have. It's not described here. I've heard other preachers deal with it. Just point out what I've pointed out, that it just seems to be a natural occurrence. But I had the thought, I think I've mentioned already once a book that I have young people read in preparation for marriage. Well, one of the aspects of that book is it talks about the differences between men and women. Was that out loud? What year is this? It's still true, actually. But one of the differences is, while men are more task-oriented, and women, that's something to remember, because in the courtship days, you're the task, and you get lots of attention, and you get married, and there's other tasks. Food, clothes for babies, diapers. He's distracted. He's not as romantic as he used to be. Remember, he's task-oriented. And then guys, remember, date night. Keep the spark there. Women are relationship-oriented. And I just wonder if women are more hesitant to let sin run rampant because they know instinctively this stuff ruins relationships. And then they finally say it's hopeless. There's no such thing as happy relationships. Just give yourself to pleasure. And you see what is described here. The judicial removal of restraint. And if you read this and you see tomorrow's newspaper, you see a culture promoting, celebrating these sins and now calling evil anyone that would speak against these sins. You see a culture on the brink You see that hand of restraint further and further and further removed. It is a fearful time. It is a sober day. I said in the middle of this long message that from my notes use the word outset that most of what we would deal with today is quite solemn, quite sober. But I don't want to leave you. We won't turn it up and take time. But there's another catalog of evil, very similar to this one, but Paul records in 1 Corinthians. And he goes down the list and we see the perversions that are here outlined, things almost unspeakable. And then there's this amazing phrase. Such were some of you. But you're washed. You can read Romans 1 and think 
It's hopeless. Well, if you look strictly at sinners and their condition and their ability to do anything about their condition in themselves and in their own strength and with their own heart and with their own desires, it is hopeless. But Romans 1 is the first chapter of a book written about the power of the gospel. Written by a Jewish converted evangelist that is giving his life to taking the gospel to the Gentiles. To the very people, to the very cultures that are described in Romans chapter 1. As he said in the introductory words, that I might have some fruit among you also, as among other Gentiles. The answer to man's depravity and need and perversion and wickedness is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God who sovereignly removes His hand of restraint can just as easily, powerfully intervene and breathe life into the darkest of hearts. You see, men in the condition described in this chapter don't don't merely need light. That's not the problem. Light's shining everywhere. They need sight to see the light. And a sovereign God who is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy sends the light of the knowledge of God in the face Jesus Christ. Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. A gospel that came with power to the Romans. A gospel that came with power to the Corinthians. A gospel that came with power to Philippi and Ephesus and Thessalonica and Berea. It's the same gospel we preach in Winston-Salem that has power to save the darkest of sinners and allows the likes of you and me to stand and sing with John Newton. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. Willfully, stubbornly blind. On purpose. I editorialized Newton there, but he would agree. But now, I see. May God give us grace to rejoice in the light of the Gospel. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, what can we say? We read words in this chapter that just confront us as we walk out the door of this building. It is evident on every hand. Lord, the truth is not only shining to us in the stars of the heavens, It's not only shining to us in the law written on our hearts and the conscience. It shines to us as we see the evidence even of sin and what you've described here in this chapter surrounds us. Oh Lord, give us hearts Lord, to to be held back from any trying to wiggle out from under any of the light that you would give. So prosper your word. Lord, speak words preachers can't speak. And by your Spirit, write your law savingly 
upon our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.